The fundamental goal was to modernize the Communications Act to recognize the fact that we were now entering an era where video, voice, and data were all going to be able to run over the same network. Hello, you are listening to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. Recently, the D.C. Circuit Court interpreted Section 706 of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Section 706 is one small piece of a complex and voluminous piece of legislation. Earl Comstock, principal at Comstock Consulting, speaks with Chris this week. He's a former congressional staff member who helped craft the bill and move it through the legislative process. In addition to participating in the development of the act, Earl has had a chance to see how it's been interpreted by past administrations, the FCC, and the courts. Here are Chris and Earl. Welcome to another edition of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Today I'm speaking with Earl Comstock, the principal at Comstock Consulting. Welcome to the show, Earl. Uh, Nice to be here, Chris. So, Earl, I want to get into some of your expertise, and we're going to be talking about the 1996 Telecommunications Act. Um, But first, I I want you to explain to our audience why they should think that you know anything about the act. And, And I'll introduce you by way of saying that you and I first met at a Freedom to Connect event uh, in near Washington, where I sort of thought of you as being more of a cowboy. So um, what experience do you have with the 96 Act? Well, actually, I was one of the principal staff that worked on the 96 Act. Uh, I worked on the Senate side, both for Senator Ted Stevens of Alaska and also as a special counsel to the Senate Commerce Committee, which was the principal Senate committee involved in the drafting of the bill. And so I participated in literally everything from the very beginning of the bill to uh, all the way through conference. And, you know, what's interesting is most people think of the Telecommunications Act of 1996 sort of as this single entity, but it actually was the culmination of about four years of very solid and focused work by the Congress um, on specifically reformatting communications laws in the United States. This was the actually the only major overhaul of the Communications Act of 1934 uh, that had occurred up to that time and, and actually has occurred since. So in the 80 years since the act was adopted, this was the one fundamental uh, reorganizing and, and amendment of that statute. What was the, the purpose? You said it took many years of studying what was happening and coming up with a plan. What was the goal of the 96 Telecommunications Act? Well, the, the fundamental goal was to modernize the Communications Act to recognize the fact that we were now entering an era uh, that we're in today where because of the digitization of information and the no longer having to use sort of analog transmission technologies, but you were going to digital, the advent of fiber, the advent of, of protocols like TCPIP, you are now going to be able to use the same basic underlying infrastructure to transmit what had previously been required separate infrastructures, namely, in particular, video, voice, and data we're all going to be able to run over the same network. The same basic telephone lines or the cable networks or the wireless networks, basically they're all going to turn into being able to deliver the same services. That's right. Up until, until the advent of the digitization and then you know, particularly the development of fast enough computer processing, you had a system where in order to send video signals, which require a large amount of data, 
we really had to build a separate network, and that was the coaxial cable network. Uh, Narrowband digital information could run over the telephone network, uh, as which had been optimized for voice, but also sent data. Uh, and then you had wireless was coming along. And originally, you know, we used the wireless wireless spectrum for sending telegraph messages, and then we advanced on to using it for radio and then TV broadcast. Uh, but again, it took up large amounts of bandwidth to send particularly video information. And now with you know, sort of this convergence of not only the digitization that allowed you to use the same physical infrastructure, but you had the, the computer industry converging as well with the high-speed processing and computer capabilities, which were going to be necessary to do this packetized, digitized uh, information flow. Um, in fact, the one thing I would say that, that people really misjudged in the 96 Act was the length of time it was going to take for computer processing to become small enough and powerful enough to give you the kinds of devices that you have today. Um, I think if you'd asked people back when we were doing the 96 Act, they would have thought you'd have a device like the iPad or your smartphone. Uh, probably they would have put the date somewhere around early 2003, 2005 instead of you know, those devices rolling out really closer to, the, to 2010. One of the things that Dwayne Hendricks and I talked about in previous podcasts was how some of the FCC policies really seem to have slowed down the emergence of those devices by not encouraging an environment where they would be able to seamlessly communicate. Um, so I think I think some of our criticisms of the FCC uh, will be coming up a little later in the show. Um, but one of the one of the criticisms that I've heard of the ninety six Act is actually that. The people who were crafting it didn't really understand what the Internet was, and they never used the term Internet in it. Uh, and so I'm curious if you can respond to those sorts of charges. Um, well, certainly be happy to. First of all, the, the term Internet is in there. Uh, it's, it's defined in Section 230, which was added in the 96 Act. But the main reason you didn't have the term Internet in there is because the Internet is simply a term for a network of networks. And so... In a way, it's it's too broad a term. Um, in fact, there was actually a, a provision that somebody had added, uh, a congressman had added on the House floor, that would have prohibited the FCC from regulating the Internet. But because the term was so broad, everybody looked at that and said, well, we don't know what that's going to result in. It's, I mean, depending on how you look at that, the Internet could be everything from all of your applications and devices uh, that might attach to this network, to the network itself, to some subset of the network. So that provision was struck in conference. Um, and so that's the reason you don't see the term Internet in there, really, because um, it, it's a vague general description of an interconnection of networks. And the, the statute itself basically said, we don't care what technology you're going to use. Um, it may be TCP/IP now. It might be something else in the future. This is a statute that's going to probably remain in effect um, if the last major iteration of the statute was any guide for the next 60 years. So, um, you know, while everybody's focused on the internet as if somehow it's it's the be-all and end-all of everything, the reality is there will be a next-generation internet and a, probably another one after that. And so these um, people like Senator Stevens and Senator Hollings, you know, members who had been here a long time, knew that this this legislation was not going to be being changed, you know, every other year to address some new technology. 
They were trying to write it in technology-neutral terms, and that's why they really focused on what is it that you're doing with this infrastructure? What's the goal here? So they focused on things like universal service, making sure that there would be support for the infrastructure that's needed so that rural areas and high-cost areas and, and poor urban areas would all be served just like the telephone network had been been rolled out before. They wanted to make sure this infrastructure was going to get deployed, that certain rules were going to be available to make sure there could be competition on that network, and um, to make sure that you weren't going to regulate more than you needed to. So they were very aware of the Internet. You know, For anybody that's interested in history and wants to go back and research it, I mean, the Internet was featured on the cover of Time Magazine in 1994. Interactive, which was sort of a predecessor term for that, was featured on the cover of Newsweek in 1993. You had the Clinton-Gore administration with their national information infrastructure. There were reports by the National Research Council, the you know, Office of Technology Assessment, the General Accounting Admi you know, uh, Office. I mean, the term Internet was everywhere. Sex on the cyber highway. I mean, you know, <laughs> people were very focused on it. And in fact, people forget that there was a whole section of the 96 Act that dealt with uh, not only porn on, on cable, but porn on computers. And so if, if members weren't aware of the Internet, then how did they – they must have been very prescient then to be sitting there dealing with Internet porn. Um, so it was it was very much front and center. The reality was because people weren't focused, they didn't want to see anybody regulating the applications and services with the exception of this uh, decency issue. Um, they were really focused on the nuts and bolts of the underlying infrastructure that makes the Internet possible. So one of the things that I've been critical about, and I say that very consciously as someone who um, you know, didn't really get involved in, in, in Internet policy or wasn't interested in how these things worked until 2003 or later. Um, and so when I look back, I think, well, the, the Telecommunications Act it got everything wrong. We, we don't have competition. And, um, and in our conversations before today, um, you know, you've helped me to understand that that's not necessarily the fault of the act, that in fact um, there are a lot of things the act got right but were later screwed up in part by the Federal Communications Commission and uh, courts maybe and the Congress getting involved. I don't know, but um, I'm curious, how did things – how did we not end up in the world that we hoped we would end up when we passed the act? The Federal Communications Commission is the chief culprit there. They uh, they took the statute, and because the various bureaus inside the FCC were very closely aligned with certain segments of the industry, there was a cable bureau, there was a common carrier bureau, uh, you know, there was a, a wireless bureau. They all uh, sort of protected their individual fiefdoms. And wrote, um, rather than looking at this and saying, you know, now with convergence, and if you actually read the Telecommunications Act, you can see this, Congress basically said, we're going to start moving everything toward what's called a common carrier regime, Title II. And the basic thrust of common carriage is you, the network operator, don't, you know, this is, you're transmitting somebody else's information, just like a taxi cab is picking somebody up and carrying them somewhere, or a hotel is renting a room, or uh, you know, UPS is delivering packages. I mean, this is you're taking information that's not yours, and your responsibility is to deliver it from point A to point B. Um, 
we were supposed to move everything toward that. So you would have basically had had the 96 Act vision been followed, you would have ended up with essentially elimination of the cable rules by and large, and you'd largely have over-the-top video being delivered. People would be buying bandwidth and using it however they saw fit. Uh, if they want to do it, use it for voice, great. If they want to use it for data, great. If they want to use it for video, fine. Everybody would be competing, and you would go to individual websites or who, who might package information for you, or they might offer you different packages, services. But the bottom line is you would be able to attach your device and come up with new services, new uh, both information services or new transport services to send across this. It would have been your basic pipe, as Senator Stevens referred to it, uh, that would have been used to transmit information just like any other utility. So the, the goal of the 96 Act was essentially to start eliminating these silos, the, the cable silo in particular, and move toward uh, a common carrier regime. That's why if, if you look, there's a Section 10 of the Act that was added that basically says the FCC can waive any provision in the entire statute if it's dealing with a telecommunications carrier or a telecommunications service. Telecommunications is dealt with under Title II, and that was to be the prime provision of the, of the statute. Well, it turns out the FCC decided they didn't like Title II, and so they basically interpreted the statute in a, in a way that allowed them to not have to apply Title II. Um, so they've turned the act on its head. And so one of the questions I have then is, so you would say that the 96 Act basically anticipated um, that, um, you know, for instance, if Comcast was delivering service to my home, that I would be able to get multiple ISPs that would be competing using the Comcast infrastructure, and they would be competing on the service level for my business. Exactly. Now, that's that's exactly what was envisioned. And, and you have to understand, at the time Congress was writing the 96 Act, the FCC had in place for the last 15 years what was called the Computer 2 regime, that did exactly that. It said that the telephone companies or anybody that was considered a common carrier could compete in these information or enhanced service markets as long as they made available to other competing parties the underlying transmission network. And so the goal was to apply that same type of regime to cable networks, which then would have allowed you to um, get the bandwidth you need to do over-the-top video, to do your Netflix, to do Hulu, to do all these other things that you can do today, but albeit very slowly and without a whole lot of competition. When a lot of us who are critical of the FCC look back on this, we blame the Bush administration. And you've spoken up in a number of places saying it's not that simple. Um, when, when did the FCC start making these decisions that, that were moving away from the goals of the Act? Uh, literally within months of the passage of the Act. <laughs> so starting under Chairman Hunt, followed by particularly Chairman Kennard. Chairman Kennard was really the, the, the person who was in the driver's seat when they made critical decisions about not applying this common carrier regime to cable. Um, and, and once they made that decision, and Senator Stevens and Senator Burns and others who were very concerned about universal service challenged that and said, what are you doing? Uh, why aren't you applying this to cable? Why, why isn't Internet over cable going to pay into universal service like 
data over telephone networks does. They were very distressed about that, and you know that was really the starting of the unraveling of the act. Once the FCC decided to treat cable as something different, and they did it several different times. They did it in, in terms of not applying universal service. They did it in terms of um, not, not opening it up to competing ISPs. They did it in terms of, of giving the cable folks a reduced rate or not increasing the rate that they were going to pay for pole attachments, um, which was one of the requirements of the act. And if you've got any doubt about their, uh, the cloud of the cable industry, um, there was also a provision in the 96 Act that told the FCC very specifically to open the set-top box market to competition. Um, here we are 20 years later, and <laughs> right. you still don't have set-top box competition. <laughs> right, I mean, and that's that's the perfect example, I think, of where you're throttling innovation because the, the, the folks that make TiVo, wow, they had some great ideas, and a lot of those ideas were either stolen or they were prohibited from really being accessible to, to hundreds of millions of people. Right. Well, when you look at what you can do on your smartphone and compare that or on your Apple TV or something else and compare that to what you can do with your set-top box, it's mind-boggling. I mean, why are we stuck with this lousy search capability? Um, and I know I think Comcast just finally came out with a box you can talk to. I haven't heard any reports as to how well it works. But, I mean, there's been very little innovation uh, on the cable network at all. And and also the other thing that people forget is, you know, when the internet got started because you could buy connections from the phone company, they had to sell them to you, and you could attach electronic devices that met certain standards to that network, and the phone company couldn't say anything about that. If you wanted to use it to send data in a different fashion, you could. But that was because of regulations that allowed you to do that. You can't do that on the cable network. I was just reading that and um, um, rereading a part of uh, um, Reed Hunt's book, um, so You Say You Want a Revolution, I think is what it was called. And he talks about that the telephone companies wanted to charge you the equivalent of long-distance fees for using your modem on their network. And you know that was regulation that prevented them from overcharging people. And that's what allowed so many of us. I mean, I remember dialing into, I think it was infocom.com in Rochester, Minnesota, as a high school student, and uh, and and you know reading about um, all kinds of things on the internet at that time. And my parents never would have let me do that if we had to pay um, per minute. Right. Well, that was the foreign exchange rules, and 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 I mean certainly the you know the FCC under Chairman Hunt did some good things, but he missed the bigger point, which was this digital convergence and and he missed the opportunity then to apply the the rules that had been successful on the telephone network to the cable infrastructure and as he was warned once they made the decision that broadband over cable was not going to be subject to these rules it was inevitable that they then they'd have to take away those rules for broadband over telephone and, and you know here's another indication of just how Badly, the FCC got it. In 1992, when Bell Atlantic committed to the state of New Jersey that they were, you know, in exchange for rate deregulation, they would build a, a broadband network. Um, they had three different s speed commitments that they made. One was narrowband, which was 144 kilobits a second. Um, so that was an upgrade from existing plain old telephone service. 
wideband was 1.5 megabits a second, and broadband was 45 megabits a second symmetric service. This is in 1992. So when people were talking about broadband, when Congress was talking about broadband, when you talk about Section 706 and, and the advanced telecommunications capability, they were talking about 45 megabits and up, a DS3 and up. I mean, nobody would have considered, you know, 768 kilobits a second broadband. Um, yet you had the FCC, who starting in the late 90s decided, oh, well, we want to make sure that wireless qualifies as, quote, broadband. So they, you know, they, they, they wanted to generate this fiction of facilities-based competition. And the only way you could get more than two, because, of course, there's just the cable network and the phone network, right? They had to create something more. So they kept the broadband speed very low so that wireless could qualify. And lo and behold, whoa, we've got six people in a market. What do you know? Wow, gosh, so fast. And same thing with satellite. Yet nobody is going to use wireless or satellite as a replacement for a wireline. Um, you know, look at the way the government collects data today and they talk about people cutting the cord. Well, all they're doing is they're, they're no longer paying for voice telephone service. But those people are keeping their broadband connection. So, so right there, the government is busy misleading people as to what's really going on in the communications market because they're trying to keep up the fiction of multiple facilities-based competitors. When we talk about facilities-based competition, you made the point that in the in the '96 Act, there was an expectation that if uh, the competitive providers that were using other people's infrastructure chose to do so, they would have the option of building new infrastructure. But the FCC interpreted that as over time the new competitors would have to build their own infrastructure because they would not always have access to the cable and incumbent telephone facilities. When the statute was passed, one of the things, one of the keys, and again, found in Title II, was the right for competitors to connect their own networks or their own parts of networks to the underlying existing infrastructure. And you know, this was a recognition by Congress that really a competitor to get started was going to have to enter in a series of stages. They might start out reselling the existing either cable or phone network we were thinking at the time. That, as they got customers and therefore got a revenue stream, they might decide, oh, I want to add my own switch or I want to add my own, uh, you know, fiber ring in a particular area. And so they would add those piece parts. But again, they would they would continue to grow by competing, reselling, gaining size. As they as they did that, they would probably want to control more of their network. In fact, you know you see that today with uh, the the recent decision by Netflix to say, oh, we're going to instead of paying somebody else to let me use their network, I'm going to build sort of my own network a little bit and do this. But they're not building infrastructure that's reaching every home and business. They're building a series of point-to-point -point data connections that they have a lot of traffic on, and it makes sense. But what happened was, you know, the, the decision was made that rather than saying we're going to open the cable network to this resale model, they said, no, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to let competing ISPs have a right to get access to the cable network. If you want to compete with them, you've got to build your own. Well, that left you with the phone network, and a couple of years later, they took away the phone rules that allowed people to get access to that. So we went from having literally thousands 
of independent ISPs who are competing for your business to now we've got just a couple of major players. You saw the same thing happen in long distance. But for, you know, when we did the 96 Act, there were over 400 long distance providers. Well, there weren't 400 physical networks in the United States providing long distance service. There were probably about a half a dozen. And the rest of those people were reselling capacity on AT&T or MCI or Sprint's networks. Through resale, you got a lot of consumer competition uh, for both businesses and, and residential customers. But there weren't that many physical infrastructures that you were doing. That was a function of how much, you know, basically maximizing the use of the existing facilities. Congress thought when they did the 96 Act that the same model would apply. And it would have applied if, if the FCC had maintained its Computer 2 rules to the provision of, of broadband Internet service to homes. If, if I was a competitive ISP and I started off by leasing the facilities of the incumbent telephone company and then I decided I was going to build my own fiber, that fiber then would still have common carrier requirements on it, right? That's absolutely correct. When you're using the public rights-of-way, the basic statute says you get access to the public rights-of-way and poles, ducts, and conduits if you're going to be a common carrier. And... Um, you know, somehow the FCC is managing to let people get all the benefits of being a common carrier without any of the obligations. And, and you know, just the, the reality is, Chris, if you think about it, you know, when we, we now have competition in, in most states in electricity, but nobody's building another electric line to your house to have that competition. What they've got is they've got different generators of power who then all share that transmission, that line, that electric line to your house, and they can come in and offer you know, their power over the same line. The incumbent power company is the guy who maintains that line, and he gets paid for letting other people use his line. But nobody was crazy enough in electricity to say, oh, gosh, we need another electric line strung to your house if you want to have electricity competition. Yet somehow that's what the FCC has effectively done, is they've said rather than the way this, the statute was structured, where if the competitor decides he wants to build his own facilities, he's got that right. The FCC turned it around and said, oh, no, if you want to compete, you must build facilities. Well, that's why we don't have much competition today. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. All of the cable networks, all of the phone networks that reach every home and business in this country were built in a monopoly environment. So asking a competitor to come in and duplicate that is just insane. Uh, it, it hasn't worked anywhere. We're going to come back, and Earl, we're going to talk again in the near future and talk about things like network neutrality and I think really um, how that's a symptom of a problem in solving um, other problems will make network neutrality no longer a problem. Um, and we'll talk a lot more about Title II. Um, but is there anything else you want to say in regard to this little history lesson today? Glad to have the opportunity to hopefully help educate some folks. And like I said, if people are interested, there's there's lots of information out there if anybody cares to do some research on it. Any place you'd recommend they look to start? Go in and, and search for things by the National Research Council. Uh, you can look for the Office of Technology Assessment, uh, the Government Accountability Office. But there is plenty of information out there to show that in the, uh, in the period from really about 19, late 1980s through mid-1990s, there was tremendous focus and discussion on the Internet. I mean, just just go to Times Archives or Newsweek's archives, uh, and you'll see how much it was being discussed back then. So, and and not just the internet, but this whole idea of convergence, 
the whole idea that there would be, you know, people, they called them personal digital assistants, PDAs back then. But essentially that was the iPad. Um, you know, Apple had the Newton back in those days, right. which was the forerunner of the iPad. I mean, you know, everybody thought we were going to have all these devices a lot sooner than we actually did. What it took was it took processing power to become fast enough and cheap enough that you could, and, and microelectronics to come along, and battery power in particular, to get powerful enough to be able to give us the devices that people were actually talking about, you know, literally decades ago. The mistake in the 96 Act, leaving aside the FCC's misinterpretation, was simply that I think people people would have thought we would have gotten to where we are today a lot sooner than we did. Well, thank you so much for coming on this show. We'll talk again soon. Okay. My pleasure, Chris. Thank you, Earl, for sharing your unique knowledge and experience. Continue to check in with us to learn more as the FCC considers the next steps it will take under Section 706 of the 1996 Telecommunications Act. Several communities have informed us that they've passed resolutions in support of the FCC's authority, and we will continue to follow developments. We'd like to hear your ideas for the Broadband Bits podcast. If there's a topic that interests you, or if you'd like to hear from a specific guest, please email us. Write to podcast at muninetworks.org. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at communitynets. This show was released on March 11, 2014. We want to thank the group Valley Lodge for their song Sweet Elizabeth, licensed using Creative Commons. Thanks for listening and have a great day.